Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Dr. Tony Hayek, who's the CEO and founder at Blue Wealth Property. He is a property investing expert, and we have a chat to Tony about the research and methodology behind the properties that he purchases himself with his vast portfolio and the properties that he puts forward for his property investor clients. We have a chat all about his due diligence process, where he's put people into property, and the factors that he looks for when green lighting areas for investment it's a fascinating interview without further ado here is tony dr tony hayek thank you for joining me on geared for growth my pleasure mate no problem at all it's uh, an interview I've certainly been looking forward to for, for a little while, but um, just for the people that maybe haven't heard of you, Tony, uh, can you let us know who you are and what you specialise in, what you do? Uh, sure. I'm the um, CEO and founder of Blue Wolf Property. Uh, we're a, a property research company that specialises in supporting financial professionals to support their clients. So uh, we mainly work with accountants, um, mortgage brokers and, and uh, financial planners. Um, and when their clients are looking to invest in property, they essentially refer their client to us and we use research to match uh, the property to the numbers given to us by the finance professional. Yeah, awesome. And we're going to we'll jump into the secret recipe hopefully a little bit there, there, Tony. Can you give us a bit of dirt on you though? Sure. What posters were on the wall uh, growing up? Uh, well, mate, there certainly weren't any um, real estate posters. No. <laughs> I, uh, when I reflect on my li- when I reflect on my life, I I can sort of see how um, uh, real estate um, you know got into the water supply. Um, but you know, as a kid, I was like most kids. You know, I um, I'm a rugby league, massive rugby league fan, and so I you know posters of Terry Lamb and go the dogs, you know, Steve Mortimer, and those kind of players. Yeah, yeah. go the dogs. <laughs> um, Coming off a 38 to nil victory over the Dragons yesterday, which was quite unbelievable. Yeah, wow. Um, and you know, I had a, you know photos of cars and you know just things that things that um, lots of young boys uh, love. You know, cars, sport, you know, that kind of stuff. So awesome. And um, nothing, nothing that sort of pointed to uh, to where I am, uh, where I am today. That's for sure. No, and there's a bit of a common thread uh, with I think your 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 degrees, your bedroom posters, but um, you've ended up where you are. But h- how did you get started in property, and, and what was your first investment? Um, I got started in property um, through uh, business consulting. So when I left university, I graduated with a. PhD in organisational psychology and decided that as a young uh, academic, um, I was going to uh, transform the world of small business by uh, consulting to them and teaching them how to implement systems and uh, develop better strategy and develop better HR and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of my clients was a property developer who, um, who were two brothers and had a successful um, a property development business. And after business consulting to them uh, and a few discussions, I ended up being uh, a partner in the business. Um, and I left the business consultancy behind. And as a young man in my uh, mid-20s, late 20s, um, the property development was this um, um, amazing world of uh, riches and success. 
and um, and that's pretty much uh, most of what I knew about it at the time. Yeah. So I joined this business, and and my job essentially was to continue to develop the strategy and the structure and the systems of that business to make it more successful. Awesome. Uh, and what I realised, uh, and what I realised after a little while was that I loved property, but I hated development. Right. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, and then I moved on from that. And and before we we, we got to the the swanky offices and the George Negus interviews, you 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 come from an honest working class uh, background, which which we like on this podcast. The people that are, that are given you know ten million dollars and say you know turn that into something, son, doesn't <laughs> doesn't sort of relate well to, to 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 my background. Can you tell us a bit about your formative yep. years, Tony? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I was born in uh, born in Melbourne. Uh, my parents immigrated to Melbourne. My dad in the late 60s, my mum in the early 70s, they met here and got married here. And um, my background is very much working class. My dad worked in uh, the Ford factory on the assembly line um, in the 70s uh, when I was a kid uh, or when I was born. And um, and I'm the oldest of three children. My mum worked in um, worked in factories as well and... Uh, we moved to Sydney in the late 70s, uh, 79, I think, from memory, and uh, I've been a Sydney boy ever since. Um, so my dad, uh, mum and dad owned small businesses most of my life, and then in the mid-80s, dad bought um, bought a taxi plate and uh, and started driving taxis and and then did that until uh, until his retirement uh, a few years ago. So I, uh, I certainly know um, uh, from first-hand experience the, the benefits of hard work and and the way that that rubs off on on children, and and um, you know the honesty that needs to be put into relationships uh, in and around your life by um, by walking the talk. So um, yeah, that's uh, that's sort of my background. I wasn't a very academic child at school. Uh, I I actually failed my HSC, which is how I ended up at uh, Newcastle University, <laughs> right? And uh, and scraped in by the skin of my teeth. Um, and then I found myself at Newcastle University for nine years. So I ended up doing three degrees and I with a PhD scholarship. So I was a bit of a late bloomer when it came to my academics. And, um, you know, that taught me a whole bunch of stories about life and about children. And now as a parent, um, a whole bunch of things about parenting. And, and there were certainly some great life lessons in all of that. Yeah, clearly you're a, you, you became a clever bloke if you weren't born one with your, your psychology PhD. And <laughs> I'm interested, there must be a bit of crossover between psychology and, and driving a cab as well. I mean, I've, I've had plenty of rides with very philosophical cab drivers that have sort of become, you know, a de facto psychologist for, for my issues of the day. How, how did that sort of uh, the degree help you with the cab driving? Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit of a chicken or the egg, you know. I don't know whether the degree helped me or whether the cab driving helped me, you know. It's uh, one of the philosophies that I live by in life is that people yep. buy people. And I think not unlike the story of the hairdresser and uh, other other sort of client-facing uh, uh, high turnover, high client turnover industries, you know, in any given shift, um, you know, you could be you could be in the car with 20 or 25 different people and... Um, you know, different people of different um, socioeconomic backgrounds, different academic backgrounds, different financial backgrounds, different um, cultural backgrounds. And, and so certainly what it does is it gives you exposure to a, a, um, a broad range of people. And what that requires, essentially, for it to be successful is uh, an ability to adapt, an ability to understand, an ability to be empathetic, an ability exactly. to listen. 
uh, all of which have become very important um, characteristics uh, in business. You know, I think the success of Blue Off Property has come about as a result of the uh, the community uh, and the tribe that was built uh, in and around the business, and and a lot of that car, you know, is, is built in the foundations that were learnt many many years ago, in, in you know, in the taxi and the university. And, yeah, that's a really interesting insight, and I, I absolutely uh, agree with you. And, and obviously, yeah, that that that's all paid dividends for for getting your business to the point it is today. What was the sort of the the idea back when you were studying psychology? Were, were, were you always kind of interested in that, or, or what what was the career path that you had in front of you as you as you got into uni? Mate, to be honest, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do when I was a kid. Um, my 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 dad, who uh, was forced out of school um, in year eight um, uh, to help his his father on the you know who was a who was a cow trader, uh, um, so I was very much a country boy. And uh, one of the things I think that my father always reflected on in his life is uh, his uh, lack of opportunity around education, and so therefore education became a big thing in our house. Um, and as a very average student from my um, ethnic background and I really struggled at school. You know, I'd come home and I'll, you know, my parents barely spoke English and, you know, they got better over the years, but they certainly couldn't help me with my homework yeah. and couldn't guide me the way that we can now these days with our children. And so um, I had no real idea what I wanted to grow up and be. All I'd know is that my father wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor, you know, yeah, yeah. Sort of traditional um, high status, high status jobs, um, something that he perceived uh, would be something that he could be proud of. Um, and so one day my sister started talking about psychology and I'm like, psychology? Well, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll do that. <laughs> so you put a lot of thought into um, it. So, you know, it, there was... <laughs> yeah, that's right. There was no real rhyme or reason. And, and no surprise, you know, I was a relatively average student. And I didn't really have any um, desire to, to be a psychologist as a kid. What I actually wanted to be when I was a young, young boy yeah, right. was a photographer. So I had this fascination with cameras and with uh, photography, um, and even to this day, you know, the, you know, I love I love taking photos and I love taking video snips and and you know I love uh, uh, I love the world of you know imagery and photography. So, um, but uh, yeah, didn't didn't work out that way. I wanted to drop out of uni when I uh, when I first started, and I went to my mum and said oh, I'm going to drop out of university, and she said to do what? And I said to become a photographer. <laughs> Cut a very long story short, she said, after she tried to talk me out of it, she said, okay, well, if you want to become a photographer and drop out of university, you <laughs> right. know, I'll tell your father. So I got back in my car. I got back in my car and drove straight to university. <laughs> I, I've, I've, and, I've heard uh, about... <laughs> the, the thought I, of telling I, I've my heard dad, about these sort of draconian was, uh, was uh, immigrant fathers. That obviously, you, you you thought better of it. Yeah, my father was, you know, he was a he's, a, he's a beautiful man and he was very a very loving yeah. man, but he was also very hard. You know, he was very. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. Um, he wouldn't uh, allow us to make excuses and and um, and get away with some of the things that I know that my kids get away with. Also, you know, the current generation gets away with. Which, as a parent now, is also a difficult concept. You know, how? At what point do you push your kids? At what point do you stop pushing your kids? At what point do you let them do what they want to do? You know, parenting is. Uh, it's a very difficult concept, and and uh, it's quite difficult balancing the the. Um, the needs of the modern day child with the uh, with the traditions of the of, of the generation it's before, a bit like, you know. A bit like so, um, anyway, 
Yeah, it's a bit like finance. Like. So I guess you don't get a lot of training before being a parent. You need a license to keep a turtle, but anyone can have a child, Correct. Uh, which is a little bit yeah. of a concern maybe with some people. Correct. Correct. So you mentioned... Um, well, it's funny, you know, when I was a kid, I used to think my parents knew everything, and then I became a parent and realised that they were just making <laughs> yeah. it up as they went. Yeah, I can, you, know? I, you, you do grow up sure. thinking your, your parents are heroes if you if you have a good sort of childhood background but it's funny that when you start sort of pulling behind the curtain and go he that he's talking out his backside on that <laughs> hopefully i can keep up the ruse as long as possible and you are as well tony you you yeah, mentioned uh, the property getting into the water supply w- was the first time you doing that sort of consulting work with the the, the developers that you became a, a, a director in in that business was that your first taste uh, no, it wasn't my first. It was, I mean, you know, I had lots of friends at school whose parents were property developers and they were in property. So my first real exposure was through my friends and friendship group. Um, and what I, what I, what I'd built, um, as an impression in my mind as a child or as a young boy was that, you know, property, uh, would, would, uh, drive success. It, it, it was, I had this association with anyone associated with property was successful. And so any of these people who uh, were in and around the property game, uh, construction, development, investing, whatever, seemed to be successful. And so I had this link um, between success, certainly financial yep. success, and property. And I thought, you know, that, that's an, it's an interesting line. And, you know, that sort of then started to play out in my life. And when I, when I became a business consultant, one of my... Um, one of my first clients was a very successful real estate agent in the inner west of Sydney, and I learned uh, I learned a lot of what I know today of him. I learned a lot of what I know today of uh, um, one of my partners that uh, that I went into the development with, John. And so, you know, between those uh, those two people, particularly um, the, the mechanics of property and the philosophies of property became um, became embedded in my mindset and. Um, and although I realised that I didn't really like development, I, what I did realise was that I loved property. And, uh, and what essentially ended up happening was that I combined my two great passions and one of them is property and yep. the other one was research. And uh, having done a, a, re- a research-based PhD, um, that combination worked well and, and here we are now many years down the track uh, running uh, what is Australia's biggest client-facing awesome. wow. property research and company? You mentioned that you you found out that you didn't really like uh, development. I'm interested to to know exactly what it is that you you found you didn't like. But I, I wanted to ask a question about how how a lot of property investors seem to want to have development as part of their strategy. I.e., I'm I'm going to buy a couple of properties, and my end goal is to is to rebuild or subdivide and build something else. Do you do you think people are, are chasing the perceived uh, high sure. returns of development, or do you think it's more of a, a tangible, they, they want to actually of construct course. something and stand back and say, this is what I built sort of thing? You you, you think it's a, a, a more of a sophistication thing? No, I think it's the former. I think, yeah, I think it's the former. I think certainly it was for me as a young man. I, I didn't really think about the, you know, the, the de- you know, delivery of something. I, it was more about the the success that I yeah. believe development brought, you know, and that's sort of what I'd learnt as a young as a young boy through the uh, family friends and, and my friends' families. And so, you know, um, I think the thing about development that most people don't understand, and I certainly learnt very quickly, was that the development is actually 
another terminology for, or another term for risk management, you know? And so what most people don't understand is the risk that is born when you're, uh, when you're developing. Um, and anybody who's in business uh, understands yep. the concept of high risk, high return. Um, and I think most people focus themselves on the yep. return and don't really understand the risk. Um, and so, and so, although lots of people would like to um, uh, do development and get into development, most people don't quite understand the risk that, that that they carry, and most people don't want to risk everything that they've built in their life in order for the. Is that the biggest that thing that you sort of learned um, working as a developer that's helped you with property investing? Investing is that the understanding of the the risk return. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there, were, there were a couple of things. That, that was one of them and, and, and probably the most significant. The other one was that really the, a developer um, has to play uh, a game of patience and fighting. You know, you're fighting with the landowner to buy it at the right price and then you're fighting with the bank to get the money and then you're fighting with the tradespeople to get the stuff built on time and then you're fighting with the sales organisations to get the sales done. And the reason why there's so much fighting and so much tension is because there's so much risk. Yes. And if 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 one or two of those uh, pillars break down, the whole thing comes crashing down and you go from potentially making a million dollars to, to losing two million dollars. Yeah. And... Um, and you know that's a, that's a life changing, uh, life changing position. I want to get into the the nuts and bolts of property investing. I know that uh, from from a lot of things that you've 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 written, you favour newer property and often depart uh, often apartments. But you, you're you're not stuck in a, in a certain uh, I guess a formulaic idea of of the property that you like to to get into. Can you give us an insight into how you source quality properties and what you look for in selecting an investment for for someone? Um, if 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 we need a typical example, maybe someone looking for their first or second uh, property with, with retirement, maybe a good sort of 20, 30 years away? Sure. Well, I mean, that's, you know, our, our client, Mike, is, the, is middle Australia. Yep. Yeah? So the sort of bottom 20, 25%, and when I say bottom 20, 25%, I'm talking about um, capacity to invest. Uh, and so for whatever reason, income's too low, um, uh, don't really have an appetite to um, getting too close to retirement for a long-term property hold, whatever it might be. Mm. And then the top 20% financially, if you say, you know, the people that are more sophisticated who are, are very proactive in their investment and, and earning lots of money and, and you know, doing, um, uh, having a diversified approach towards their, their uh, investment uh, strategy. The middle 60% um, are typically our clients. You know, middle Australia uh, typically families uh, working and, and want a better life for themselves and uh, but don't quite have the time to go and buy a property, renovate it, develop it, do something with it, um, want to buy some assets uh, and hold on to them for the long term and hope that by the time they've gotten to that other end of their working life that that property will be worth more than they paid for it. Yep. And therefore, putting them in, in potentially a better position, yep. and then they want to replicate, and then they want to replicate that two, three, four, five times over the next, you know, decade or two. Yep. And so that's typically our that's typically our client. Um, the um, the nuts and bolts of it essentially is there are a few philosophies that we work um, that we work on. 
Um, one of those philosophies is that every Australian has a limited amount of money uh, to uh, spend on their on their properties, on their investments. Um, and, and when I say limited, two types of limited. One, limited by borrowing capacity, uh, and two, limited by cash flow. Yep. And so what, what we want to try and do is get our clients into the best possible portfolio they can get with the money they can borrow and hold it for as long as they can for, for as little money yep. as possible. Okay, so uh, cash flow perspective. So, um, you know, cl- client might say, oh, I've got 200 or $300 a week that I could potentially put towards my investment, and that's absolutely it, you know. And, and so the philosophies that we've adopted over, uh, over the period that we've been in business is that uh, it actually costs four times as much to hold a second-hand property versus a brand-new right. property. And so if I'm removing the emotion of what I think I know or what my parents taught me, and I want to buy a property, a good property in a good location that I can hold for the long term for uh, as economical a price as possible, that's going to give me a good return over the long period of time and some capital growth. Well, then for us, new property has always been our focus. So, you know, on average, a client will buy a half a million dollar property uh, and it'll cost them 50 bucks a week to hold. The same property, if it was um, in the same area, if it was 12 months old or more, will cost $200 yep. a week to hold. Now, why is that? Because um, maintenance is lower on new property, because vacancies are higher on new property, because typically rents are higher on new property. And very significantly, as I'm sure you are um, more aware of than most, um, depreciation is a significant yeah, factor. You'd, ho- you'd hope so, and and that's become even <laughs> yeah, and that's become even more significant on new property over the last yes. four months because, as you know, as of July first, twenty seventeen, the government changed the tax rulings around depreciation, and now only the first owner of a property can depreciate its fixtures yep. and things. And you know that's that makes. Um, a lot of difference in some cases up to a hundred dollars a week yeah. uh, from a cash flow perspective. So, and so there's some of the reasons why we favour uh, new property overall. Uh, in terms of the type of asset, well, I own, a, I own a lot of property myself, and the diversification of my portfolio is houses, townhouses, and yep. apartments. And the apartments I own are one four bedder, one three bedder. Um, and the rest are two better. You're even bit. diversified in, in so bedrooms, which is taking it to the next level. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And that is something that we promote uh, with our clients. And it's something that is very important because what we're focused on is having clients invest in assets that are appropriate for the location in which they're investing and for the demographic of the people in that yep. location. And so, you know, I typically have houses in suburbia and the dwelling typically gets smaller the closer I get to a city. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a very general um, look into the not That's That was actually a question I'd scribbled down to, to ask you is how important matching the property type to the demographics of the area is. I, I guess it's it doesn't have to be any more complex than saying, well, in, in, in suburbs like Balmain, maybe there are more families than there are in Zetland, so people are wanting an extra bedroom. Is that what we're talking about there? Sure, sure. Oh, I mean, I'd probably compare that to, for example, I think in Castle Hill, uh, average household size is um, over yep. three 
you know, 3.1 or 3.2. Uh, I think across the nation it's about two and a half. And in Piermont, which is a couple of kilometres to the city, it's 1.9. So it's actually less than two people yep. per household. And so that kind of data gives us an insight into the, into the type of demand that uh, buyers and renters have for the investments that we're going to buy. What about when you're assessing markets? Do you? Uh, I'm interested in, in what, what sort of constitutes a, a market that you want to jump into, but, but do you tend to, to look at emerging markets like regional areas or do you look a little bit more to the blue chips where there's a proven sort of capital growth trend and a proven uh, you know, supply and demand dynamic that says people are, are, are wanting you know, what you're looking at investing in? Yeah, look, we typically play it um, mm-hmm. more conservatively. And, and, and from our perspective, uh, again, one of the philosophies we subscribe to, and particularly in uncertain economic times, we tend to gravitate yep. towards the cities because one of the, probably the biggest risk that investors bear when they buy is not the property itself, but their ability to yep. get a tenant. Because... For me, if I'm holding a property and, I'm, and my intention is to hold it for 10 or 20 years, really the only risk I bear along the way is can I pay yep. the mortgage? And a significant part of that, the two most significant parts, are my job, so I want to stay employed, and my ability to, yep. have to get a tenant to earn rent. And so, you know, across our whole client portfolio nationwide, our client's vacancy rate is under 1%. Wow, yeah, okay. Um, which is incredibly strong. And the reason why that's so important is because um, our clients need to earn rent in order to help them hold the asset long enough for it to grow. And we know that people are are selling property because of duress, right? A lot of people will sell their investment property within five, six, seven years or they might never get a second one and and that has to come a little bit down to the duress of of the cash flow of holding the first one. Yep, What about... If we're looking at markets, let's say, let's take the the regional city thing out of it, but there's certain markets within a, a city, for example. What, what what do you look for when you're greenlighting a, a particular area? And are there certain sort of drivers that are more important than others? Like, for example, does, does popu- population sure. growth trump sure. infrastructure or employment opportunities? Well, they're, they're all, to a certain extent, uh, interrelated, Mark, as you probably know. You know, jobs uh, attract people and uh, populations grow and then they spend money and then that's, that increases demand and then that's all related yep. to the supply, you know. So the, th- the, three, the three significant ones um, are uh, economics, so economics and employment, um, population and demographics, and then infrastructure spending. And they are essentially the three demand drivers. And then, of course, on the flip side of that, there's supply. So if you've got strong demand drivers and moderate um, supply, uh, or even less supply than there is demand, as long as there's more demand than supply, then you're going to get some growth. Now, sometimes that growth lags a little. Money in the last few years has been cheap. And when money's cheap, supply is higher. Banks have now... um, um, stitched up their, their purse strings and uh, and they're not lending as much money to developers, investors, etc. And so what we'll see over the next uh, 18 months, which we've already started to see significantly, is a lot less supply yep. hitting the market. And with the with the 
um, current rate of population growth in um, most parts of the country, particularly places like Melbourne, for example, um, you'll see that kind of demand yep. and we start to drop. And maybe prices. now there are some you know, some opportunities for some, some good buying that in, in time is, is going to pay dividends, even though the market might be sort of sitting around its peak or coming back a little bit in places like Sydney? No question. Look, Sydney for us is um, not a market that we've currently approved. And on the back, the research is telling us very clearly that um, from a timing perspective, yep. it's uh, certainly had its run. Many of our clients invested in Sydney in 2009, 10, 11, 12, up through till about 14 uh, so we haven't actually recommended a client buy in Sydney for three or four years. Much of what um, much of what the client, the market made in 17, for example, probably the second half of 16, yep. 17, and then lost in 18. And so, you know, the, if if you bought early enough, uh, like our clients did, then you certainly got the bulk. You of You had growth, me at 2009, uh, that's for sure. Um, Tony, in your you, you've got an ebook um, <laughs> titled "How to Buy a Great Investment Property" and Interestingly, Chapter 1 is titled Exit Strategy. Now, that came as a bit of a shock. It sort of seems like maybe someone's jumbled up the numbers, but I, I'm sure that that was deliberate. Why should an investor be thinking about getting out if they're just yep. getting in or maybe their retirement plan is is, a, is quite a way away? What, how, how important is that exit strategy? It's really just that, about setting the investor's mindset. You need to begin with the end in mind. And so... From my perspective, if I'm going to buy a property that I'm going to hold for the long term, I want to ensure that I've got as strong an exit strategy as possible. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, there are two, typically two types of buyers. There are investors and there are owner-occupiers. Right? And one of the things that we're constantly promoting with our clients and, and, and what drives a lot of the property selection in our business, all of the property selection in our business for clients, is that we want to buy properties that owner-occupiers will be attracted to. Why? Because owner-occupiers are a significant portion of the marketplace. They typically buy emotionally, so they will buy, they will spend a bit more if they have to yep. to, get the, to get a good property. And when uh, when times are a little uncertain, as they are at the moment for investors and lending and banking, the owner-occupier is still yes. buying. And so... It's very important to ensure um, that one, you maximise your opportunity to um, sell the property to a, to a willing buyer, and two, you're managing your risk of um, ensuring that there's someone there Is to the buy same- if you need to get out. Because if you buy a property that only that only an investor can buy, you're limiting your exit strategy, you're limiting your market, and you're exposing yourself to a great extent to market conditions. And those properties like retirement villages and service departments and defence housing and hotel rooms and shooting accommodation—they're all the—they're all properties that we that we yeah, uh, steer away based from. On a, on a on a niche rather than a, a broad of appeal. Same principle as it's it's perhaps safer to to buy a seven hundred thousand dollar three bedroom house than a than a ten million dollar waterfront place because there's less competition at that ten million dollar price point. Yep. Well, there's a bigger pool of buyer. Yes. Um, and, and really, that's a big part of it, you know. It's about maximising your buyer pool. Yep. And making sure that you're, you, you own an asset that will attract um, that will attract the buyer. And, and, you know, a very simple example. If you buy a property that has a bedroom with no window, then you are automatically 
going to ostracise some buyers. Yep. And so don't buy a property that has a bedroom with no window. That's good. We'll, we'll, we'll turn that into a, into a quote card with your, your picture. That's a, that's a beauty, Tony. <laughs> buy, buy a bedroom with a window. Um, but no, I know, what you, I know exactly right. what you mean. Um, in, in that same... Yeah, I mean, there's lots of examples, more, more sophisticated examples than that, but that's a very simple one of, for people to uh, understand what we're getting at. Of course, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. In, in the same ebook, you said that you're 10 times more likely to double the value of your investment property if it is held for more than 10 years. What are we, what are we talking about here? Yep. So let's say we found this right property. What are we talking about 10 times more likely to double the value of the property if you hold it for 10 or more? Yeah, so... Um, you know that's just a bit of uh, a bit of data, really. But the the intention of that is to have our clients thinking long term. Right. What we don't want to do is have people thinking they're going to buy a property and make a fortune overnight, or it's going to grow in the first year or two. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I don't want them thinking, "Oh, I've had it for a couple of years. It's not really growing. I should get rid of it." Yeah. So I really want our clients focused on the concept of holding long term. And, you know, I gave that example of Sydney earlier. Our clients who bought off us, who bought a property in Sydney off us in 2009, you know, by 2012, that property had done nothing. Mm-hmm. And, you could, and you could probably argue, in some cases, actually went backwards. But then in the following five or six years, for most of our clients, that the, property, the value of that property actually doubled. Right. Um, but then for our clients who bought off us in a, a property in Sydney in 2012, their property grew very quickly yep. in the following year or two. Yeah, yeah. You know? So so nobody can pick the absolute day that a market's going to grow. But if you buy a good asset in a good location and your intention is to hold it for the long term, uh, that strategy will reward you. Yeah, well, if you've got a, a, a tenant in a, in a property that's, uh, you know, close to, to neutrally geared and you've got a long-term mindset waiting that three years for a guarantee of, you know, maybe doubling the price of your, your property, that's a little bit of patience sort of pays some pretty solid dividends, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, look, that's been proven. And, you know, now people look back and say, oh, you know, when you were recommending Parramatta in 2009, it was, you know, it's the Western Sydney's done so well and blah, blah, blah. But the reality of it is, in 2009, no one wanted to touch Parramatta. When we were recommending people invest in Parramatta, there were people criticising us for that yeah. advice. Saying, you guys, are you kidding? You're putting clients into Western Sydney. It's just rubbish, you know? <laughs> Repossessions are on the way up. Crime is high. Yep. You know, blah, blah, blah. Unemployment's high. Youth unemployment's out of control. So on and so forth. But the infrastructure and the economic growth and the population growth of those regions were telling us a, a clear picture. Now, it probably happened two or three years um, after what we expected, when we expected it to happen. But it certainly happened. When it happened, it happened. Big. It's it's fantastic now to look back and go, you know, I, I told you so. But did, did you ever get a moment of weakness where you thought, look, I, I, I trust the research and what's going on, but, you know, competitors are bad-mouthing me for picking a market that's that's doing nothing. Did did you have to have a bit of patience yourself? I guess you're staking your reputation on those areas. Absolutely. Uh, we're absolutely. all human. Right? I mean, look, we're, we're going through so Absolutely. And we're, and we're going through some of that today. You know, we... I'm a massive fan of Brisbane, and Brisbane's been a market that, you know, I own a lot of property in myself, uh, and has been a bit of a focal point for us for the last few years, and Brisbane's really done yeah. nothing. But with the shrinking of supply over the next couple of years and the constant growth up there of population, you know, we can see where that market's yeah. going. And so if you, don't have, if you don't have that patience, 
and you're not willing to play the long game and you don't have thick skin, you can't survive this game. Maybe jump in the share market. You know, you can't survive. Absolutely. Bitcoin. Well, that's even more. <laughs> yeah, Bitcoin, maybe. That's uh... um, look. You know, um, you know. Steve Jobs had a famous old line: um, "If you want to keep everybody happy, go and sell ice cream." Yeah, right. And so, you know, from from our perspective, I've, I've certainly been um, beaten around a lot over the sort of 17, 18 years I've been in the industry. But uh, you need to be resilient. You need to be patient, and um, and that's just the way. You know, that's the way the industry mm. is. Let's talk about the the property itself. We, we've we've talked about these the, the areas and the, and the supply demand drivers and 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 matching it to the demographics. What about things like proximity to amenities and and transport? Are, are things like this something that you factor into your se- selection criteria? Of course, and, and that sort of goes back to one of the conversations we've already had, and that's about exit yep. strategy. If I'm selling that property and I've got a willing buyer, will that buyer walk in and? And will the will the amenities of the asset attract them, and will the proximity to transport be what they need in order for them to make a decision around buying that property yep. off me? Uh, one of the things that we've certainly seen over the last um, ten or twelve years in Australia is that developers have become much more sophisticated around the delivery of amenity. Um, a lot of them went on um, uh, education tours into. Uh, much more densely populated countries in Asia and America and Europe uh, and learned a lot about medium density living, uh, which in most parts of the country, uh, sorry, in most parts of the world is um, a standard lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Australians aren't quite used to it. We're, we're a couple of generations behind. Um, but the modern amenity that's, that's being built into particularly Australian medium density now is quite incredible. You know, uh, um uh, Mike and his girlfriend Mary uh, live in a one-bedroom apartment in Piedmont, and historically, one of the challenges of living in a one-bedroom apartment in Piedmont or in any um, uh, suburb close to a city is, you know, entertaining. If I want to have some clients over or some friends over or some family over, I can't really fit them into my little yeah, apartment. Yeah, yeah. But now, with the, with the way modern amenity is, you can hire the common area from the body corporate have a dinner party for 10 or 12 people. Um, there are many, uh, many buildings these days with, um, you know, barbecue areas. Cinemas. Uh, and rooftops. Uh, cinemas and all sorts yep. of things, you know. So, um, you know, all, all of that stuff is, is very important for uh, maximising the client's industry. Or good depreciation as well. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that you get a lot of Absolutely. calls from developers saying, Tony, I've got this cracker of a development, I need a few pre-sales or I've got a, cu- a couple mm. left, you know, can you can you hook us up with some of your investors? They'll, they'll get a, a great deal out of it. And I know you published some stats a little while ago about how many developments that you've assessed and the percentage that you're actually green green lighting, and it is very very small. What are you, what are some of the questions to those developers, or, or or what sort of boxes do they need to tick for them to for you to sort of certify? Yes, I think there's something in it for for our clients. Uh, well, it's quite a complex process actually. Uh, we had our um, research methodology independently audited a few years ago, and it's a very stringent process. It's a bit of a mathematical yep. model. And so we have weightings around uh, around different things, around value, around location. Um, at the highest level, an area needs to be approved. Yeah, so at the moment, Sydney's not approved, and so nothing in Sydney you know, will make its way to our yeah. client. 
Um, but once an area is approved, then it comes down to some key factors, design, quality, amenity, transport, uh, rentability, uh, value. Uh, all of those are key factors that will determine whether a property ends up getting approved or not. And it's a, it's a scientific process that we take, um, uh, that we apply for every property. And so last year, for example, if we take the last full calendar year, um, only 9.7% uh, of all of the properties that we reviewed got, uh, got approved. So if you work on a 1 in 10 um, ratio, that, that, that's, about, uh, that's about where we're at. So for us, that means 9 out of every 10 properties right. actually isn't yeah, worth well. And you can just imagine people jumping into that stuff every day. Oh, absolutely, every day. You know, we had a conversation with a with a client yesterday, uh, last week, sorry, um, about uh, a property in Brisbane that they bought and about how the vacancy in their building has been zero while um, other competition buildings around are, have got significant vacancy. And the reason for that is that the, buildings that our, the building that our client bought in, uh, the apartments are oversized, the, the outdoor areas are bigger, the designs are better, the quality is better. And so when a tenant's looking, when they're, compar- when they're comparing uh, one property over the other yep. uh, to live in, uh, the yep. decision becomes quite simple. Can you, can you talk us through some of your, your big wins, Tony, either, either stuff that you've done yourself or, or for clients that, you know, obviously you're applying this, this methodology and this research and the expertise and maybe some of the, some of the results that stick out in your mind? Um, well, look, in, in recent times, Western Sydney has been, been quite, uh, yep. was a great success story. Um, for some of those reasons that I said earlier, we, you know, we copped quite a bit of, um, um, yep. criticism, um, when, uh, when we were recommending Western Sydney in, in, in what was a very, um, uh, flat period for Sydney and, and, and not much to, and that was obvious to the, uh, to the eye of the, um, um, yep. you know, the lay person. Um, if you go back, you know, we were uh, very successful, you know, 15-odd years ago uh, in places like Darwin and, and Perth. Uh, we've been successful, you know, 10, 12 years ago in, in places like Brisbane and Melbourne. We've been successful even in the last few years. Um, it, I don't really like talking about short-term stuff. Uh, you know, even short-term stuff in, in, in parts of Melbourne and, and parts of Brisbane. And so, you know, we've had, you know, lots of our clients that have that bought property off us for example, we've got some long-term clients who bought a property in, off us in Perth many years ago, uh, made a couple of hundred thousand dollars on a house they invested in over there, and then as a result of that, used the equity to buy in Darwin, and Darwin doubled between 2005 and 2010. Um, then bought a property in uh, Melbourne as a result of that, and then bought a property in Sydney a couple of years after that. And so they've essentially rolled with the equity. And, uh, and been very, very successful. And, you know, for some people, that's a difference between, um, or for most people, that's a difference between retiring on a modest, uh, amount yeah. and retiring on a, on a fortune. And, and the beauty of property is that, that leveraged growth that you get on a big asset base can, can make, uh, over the long term, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And isn't it wonderful that the better the advice that you give, the, the more the client comes back and says, I'll have a bit more of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at the same time, you know, we're a much bigger business yeah. than, we, than we were a few years ago. Uh, and with size comes um, uh, comes a lot of focus. And, you know, we've certainly had our fair share of criticism over the years. And, and uh, the bigger we get, the more in people's um, 
inboxes we are and in people's mindsets and, and people are more familiar with us. And so the, the, uh, the expectation to deliver and to deliver uh, well and quickly and consistently yeah. uh, grows every day. So that's something that we need Sounds to, like you're to up be to constantly managing. Can, can you run us through some of the, the services that, that you, you provide, Tony? I understand you work on a bit of a referral basis, but if, if someone's yeah. able to get a connection to, to your business, what, what, what sort of work are you able to do for, for property investors? Look, for us, um, much of it, Mike, is, is embedded in, in our yep. uh, education philosophy. From my perspective, I don't really want people buying property unless they unless they understand why they're buying the property. Why am I buying property? What is it about property that is going to help me grow wealth? Um, what is it that I'm looking for? What are the things that drive exit strategies? Uh, where are the markets right now? So all of that is really important. And for us, we always um, recommend that our um, accredited referral partners are taking their clients on an, on an education journey. And so we do, as you know, we hold events, uh, education-based events, uh, weekly, uh, somewhere around the country. We're a Sydney-based business. Most of those events are in Sydney. Um, but in Brisbane, in Melbourne, uh, in Adelaide. And we also do a lot of, a lot of work by webinar. So every, uh, event that we host in our office is available via webinar. And we have clients who are overseas, uh, many clients that are interstate. And so that obviously, allows us to service clients regardless of geography. Um, and when a client buys off us, we have a, an incredibly strong um, technology platform. Uh, every property they own gets its own website, essentially with all the research, and we call it the microsite. Uh, we've developed an um, industry-leading app. Uh, clients have it on their phone. Again, that gives them access to all of their properties, all the research on their properties, photos, pictures, sizes, uh, research, everything related to the property at their fingertips. Uh, they have a client service manager who takes care of them and holds their hand through the process. And, of course, probably most importantly, uh, when the going gets tough, they have someone awesome. to call for help. And now, Tony, it. if people are interested in some more education or perhaps even having a chat with you yourself, uh, is there a way that they can get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, um, our website's uh, yep. uh, probably a good place to start. Uh, they can contact us through social, social media. We're on Facebook. We're on uh, Instagram or on Twitter or on you know uh, LinkedIn, so the social social media is another way that they can contact us. But so just go to the website, click on the contact, and send us an email. We'll you know we can certainly um, support them. On the website also is uh, the events page. They jump on the events page. They can book themselves into an event, and uh, if they don't have a financial professional that they work with. Uh, we'll recommend them to uh, to a couple of good ones. Beautiful. And then they can, uh, I very much they can appreciate your, your time today, Tony. But just if we can wrap up with, with if there's one piece of advice that you could give to, to property investors, whether they're, they're chipping away at their portfolio or aspiring, um, what do you think that would be? Um, well, look, I got told many years ago, I, I am where I am in my life, I think, because of a single piece of advice I was given many years ago. Right. And that is take some action, you know. Don't sit around and watch from the sidelines. Get involved. Um, you know, when I look at my uh, the history of my portfolio, I bought some um, great properties in more recent times. But before I was doing what I'm doing, I bought some average properties. And even those average properties have done relatively well for me. And so um, take some action. Uh, and it's always easier to take action when you're well-educated um, because education gives us confidence and, uh, and confidence helps us take action. And then so if I... 
was going to impart one piece of advice. That's awesome. Thanks very much for that, Tony. I very much appreciate it. That's been great. My pleasure, man. No problem at all.